0: In the Older Testament, the book of Jonah, we are already into our third installment in this new series, and Jonah for Advent and Christmas, and as you uh, have noticed, we've been drawing on some Advent themes even from Jonah. We'll see another one again this morning as we we look at our passage together, Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, listen close. Some scripture uh, will appear on the screen. We're looking at Jonah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If you're sitting near someone, you notice they don't have a Bible, maybe you can offer to share yours. And uh, I'll say it again this week, if you need a Bible, let us know. Uh, we'd be glad to give one to you as a gift. We do have a Uh, supply of Bibles that we keep on hand to give to people. Jonah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Would you say this together with me? Who is my neighbor? Say that. Say it again. Who is my neighbor? That's the question we're asking this morning. That's the question that the Holy Spirit is asking this morning among us. Who is my neighbor? Jonah chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 5 and 6 in particular, but let me begin reading from verse 1 just to kind of synchronize ourselves again with the story here and what's going on. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 1, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. We looked at this last week. Severe storms and severe mercies. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And these are the verses of our text this morning. Verses 5 and 6. I'll read them again. Then the mariners were terrified, and each cried out to his gods. They then hurled the equipment in the ship into the sea to lighten its load. But Jonah went down into the hold of the ship, lay down, and fell into a deep sleep. Then the captain of the mariners came to him and said, How can you be sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. It's interesting. The captain uses the same word there, arise, as God used when he said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Here's the voice of God again speaking to Jonah, arise, call out to your God, the captain says, perhaps the God will favor us that we may not perish. The book of Jonah is divided into two symmetrical halves the records of Jonah's flight from God, and then of his mission to Nineveh, each of these two halves is composed of three sections. So, the first half records Jonah's flight from God, and then the second half records his mission to Nineveh. And each of these two halves are composed of three sections. God's word to Jonah, then his encounter with the Gentile pagans, and finally Jonah talking to God. If you want to kind of just have a sketch of an outline of the the story, uh, there you go. Now watch this. Twice then, in light of that outline that I just gave you, Twice, Jonah finds himself in a close encounter with people who are racially and religiously different from him. And in both cases, his attitude and behavior is dismissive, unhelpful, and ignorant. While the pagans uniformly act more admirably than he does this in fact is one of the main messages beloved of the book of Jonah the story of Jonah namely this God cares how we as Christ followers relate to and treat people who are deeply different from us This is so fitting on this Advent Sunday of incarnation emphasis that we have been meditating upon around the Advent wreath. God cares, I'll say it again, how we as Christ followers relate to and treat people, we as the body, His body of Christ in the earth, how we relate to and treat people who are deeply different from us. Too often, these sections of the book of Jonah are usually overlooked. Except perhaps to observe that we should be willing to take the Gospel to foreign lands. That is certainly true and good. But it falls short, missing the fuller meaning of Jonah's interactions with the pagans. We believe in global missions, in global work. We have global partners here, missionaries that we are partnered with in other parts of the world. Of course, and, and often we, that is recognized in this part of the story. But the, the greater message is often overlooked. The fuller meaning of Jonah's interactions with These pagan people, these unbelievers, these ones that did not know Jonah's God. Beloved, as God's people, He wants us to treat people of different races, different ethnicities, different orientations and cultures and faith in a way that is respectful and honorable and loving and generous and gracious and compassionate, and just. Let's look for a moment at Jonah and the sailors, these mariners, these seamen. Jonah had rejected God's call to preach to Nineveh. He did not want to talk to pagans about God or to lead them toward faith. And we've touched on some of his reasoning behind that in the previous weeks, so I won't go there again. But he did not want to do this. So what did he do? He ran. He went the opposite direction only to find himself talking about God to the exact sort of people from whom he was running on this ship. When the fierce storm began... The mariners were terrified, verse 5 says. Now, we've got to keep in mind and bear in mind here that that these were experienced sailors. These were veterans of the sea. They took bad weather in stride. I mean, that that was a way of life for them. They were accustomed to this. So you you have to figure that this must have been a uniquely terrifying tempest of a storm if they were terrified. Again, as I mentioned to you last week, the sea in ancient Near Eastern thought and worldview was often a metaphor for chaos. And so to these sailors... They were terrified, meaning that they recognized there was something particularly unusual and exceptional about this particular storm. Even so, the, the sailors are perceiving this, but where's Jonah? He's deep in the hold of the, sh- the ship, soundly asleep. The late Hugh Martin, who was a 19th century Scottish theologian and preacher, said this. He said, Jonah was sleeping the sleep of sorrow. Many of us know exactly what that is, don't we? The desire to escape reality through sleep. How many of you have ever been there? You know, you're, de- you're, de- storms are, you're dealing with stuff of life, situations, issues, all this. I'm just going to go to sleep. And maybe all this will go away. That's where Jonah was. The sleep of sorrow. The desire to escape reality through sleep, even if just for a little while. Jonah was profoundly spent and exhausted and drained and depleted, By powerful emotions of anger, and guilt, and anxiety, and bitterness, and resentment, and grief. Beloved, we can't miss this distinction. This is one of several carefully laid out contrasts in the story between the despised pagan sailors and the morally respectable prophet. Of Israel, Jonah. While Jonah is out of touch with his peril, the seamen are extremely alert and perceptive to what is going on. While Jonah is thoroughly observe, absorbed rather, in his own problems, they are seeking the common good of everyone on the boat. They pray each to their own God, but Jonah does not pray to his God. He's snoring. They are also spiritually aware enough to perceive that this is not just some random storm, but of a peculiar and significant intensity. We've seen a lot of storms, but we've never seen anything like this. We've weathered a lot. But we've never experienced this. Perhaps it appeared with suddenness not common to the natural forces, something that that could not be attributed to natural forces, such suddenness and intensity. They, they saw, they were perceiving something here. They are astute enough to conclude that the tempest is of divine origin, possibly a response to someone's grave sin. They've got more perception than the prophet does. These pagan people. And finally, they're not narrow and bigoted. They are open to calling on Jonah's God. Isn't that interesting? In fact, they are more ready to do this than Jonah is. When the captain finds the sleeping prophet, he says to him in verse 6, Arise! Call. Call on your God. Arise. What are you doing? Interestingly, as I said, it's the same word God used when He called Jonah to arise and go and call Nineveh to repentance. But as Jonah rubs his eyes, there is a Gentile mariner with God's very words in his mouth standing before him. What is this? God sent his prophet to point the pagans toward himself, yet now it is the pagans who point the prophet toward God? The irony of this. The sailors continue to conduct themselves in commendable ways throughout this story, discerning that there is human sin and a divine hand behind the storm they, they, they cast lots. Casting lots in order to discern the divine will was quite a common practice in ancient Near Eastern times. It was like drawing straws, if you will. And whoever got the short straw was the one who had to take the responsibility of whatever it was or whatever the situation was. And it's possible that each man's name was put on a stick, and the one that was chosen was Jonah's. God uses the lot casting, in this case, to point the finger at Jonah. Yet, even now, when they seem to have divine guidance, these sailors, watch this, even now, when it seems they have divine guidance, the sailors Do not panic and immediately lay angry hands on Jonah. They don't assume that they now have a divine mandate to kill him. Instead, they carefully take his evidence and his testimony in order to make the right decision. They show him and his God the greater of respect. Even when Jonah proposes that they throw him overboard, they still do everything possible to avoid doing it. At every point, beloved, note this at every point, the sailors outshine Jonah. Oh, how this speaks to us today in our world of evangelicalism that has gone crazy. And all of the stuff we see going on around us, politically, and with political leaders, and with uh, religious movements taking place and all of this and how we treat one another and how we're interacting with one another and the hatred that is, is so wicked on social media from so-called followers of Christ. At every point they outshine Jonah. Beloved, please, please listen there is much here in this part of the story that its author wants us to see. What should Jonah have been learning? What should we be learning? Me and you. These sailors were seeking the common good of everyone on the boat. Let's consider that for a moment. Seeking the common good. First, we learn that people outside the community of faith have a right. These sailors were outside Jonah's community of faith. And we observe that people outside the community of faith have a right to evaluate the church on its commitment to the good of all, all people. The sailors are in peril. They have used what technology and religious resources they have, but these are not enough. They sense that they cannot be saved without help from Jonah. But he's doing nothing to help them. He's asleep. And so we have this memorable picture of the heathen captain reprimanding God's holy prophet. Again, the Scotsman Hugh Martin preached a sermon on this text entitled, The World Rebuking the Church. Interesting title. The World Rebuking the Church. And he concluded that Jonah deserved it and sadly to a great extent, the church today deserves it too. We deserve a good rebuke. And perhaps from someone that we might least expect it to come from. In Jonah's case, it was this pagan captain. What is the captain rebuking Jonah for? It's because he has no interest in their common good. The captain is saying, Can't you see we're about to die here? How can you be so oblivious to our need together in this boat? I understand you are a man of faith. Why aren't you using your faith for the public good? Jacques Ellul writes, These Joppa sailors are pagans. Or in modern terms, they are non-Christians. But the lot of non-Christians and Christians is here linked. We're seeing in this story a linking between the lot of the Christians and the non-Christians. In other words, Ilal says, they're in the same boat. The safety of all depends on what each does. They're in the same storm, subject to the same peril, and they want the same outcome, and this ship typifies our situation. Here today, we are all in the same boat. Beloved, we are all of us. All of us, believing Christ followers and unbelieving pagans, we're all in the same boat. Never was that old saying more true than it was for Jonah. Never is it so true than it is for us today. If crime plagues a community, or poor health, or a water shortage, or loss of jobs, or a natural desire, If an economy and social order is broken and oppressive, we are all in the same boat. For a moment, Jonah lives in the same neighborhood. Who is my neighbor? He lives. Jonah's living for this moment in the same neighborhood as these sailors, with these sailors. And the storm that threatens one person threatens the entire community. Are you seeing this? Jonah fled. He ran because he did not want to work for the good of the pagans. He wanted to serve exclusively the interests of believers. But God shows him here that he is the God of all people. And Jonah needs to see himself as being part of the whole human community, Not only a member of a faith community. Are you seeing this? Interestingly, this ship that we call the church is not a cruise liner that is meant to be a leisure cruiser for all of the blessed believers. Do you know that the church is really the only organization and institution, organism, it really, it's a living thing, and it, it, it does not exist for its members. It's the only kind of organization, institution, organism, really, uh, for lack of better words here, that does not exist for its members. It exists for all people that we would be about our mission of reaching all people the common good of all people in Christ Jesus this is not merely a practical pragmatic argument Believers had better help non-believers or things will not go well with them. The Bible tells us we are co-humans with all people, made in God's image and therefore infinitely precious to Him. All people are made in His image. All people are image bearers of God. Even those who do not walk in faith relationship with Christ Jesus. They are made in God's image. Regardless of their ethnicity, their cultural background, their religious faith background. The captain urges Jonah to do what he can for all of them of course, the captain has no accurate ideas or understanding about Jonah's God. He has no concept about Jonah's God. He's probably hoping only for a prayer to some powerful supernatural being. However, Jonah clearly fails to bring the resources of his faith to bear on the suffering of his fellow humankind. He's not telling them how to get a relationship with God the God of the universe. Nor is he relying on his own spiritual resources in God. Simply loving and serving the practical needs of his neighbors. God commands all believers to do both things, but Jonah is doing neither. His private faith is of no public good. Now, I realize some might object in the room today that the world has no right to rebuke the church, but there is biblical warrant for doing exactly that. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've spent some time here in the Sermon on the Mount together as a congregation. In His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we are to let our good deeds shine out for all the world to see so that everyone will praise our Heavenly Father. The world will not see who our Lord is if we do not live as we ought, Jesus said. As Francis Schaefer put it, we are the people of God, the church before the watching world. We must never forget this. Turn to somebody and say to them, don't forget that. Don't forget that. We are the people of God, the church before the watching world. The world is watching us. And it's sad to know what they're seeing in some corners of the family. We deserve the critique of the world if the church does not exhibit visible love in our disposition, in our demeanor, in our practical deeds. The captain had every right to rebuke a believer who was oblivious to the problems of the people around him and doing nothing for them. So the common good... The common good, and then recognizing common grace. We also learn from this story that believers are to respect and learn from the wisdom God gives to those who, even to those who don't yet believe. How many know that you can gain some godly wisdom from people who don't even yet believe yet? Hello? I know I'm rattling some of your religious cages, maybe, and and stained glass is shattering in your in your nice cathedral right now. But we see it here in the story. It's in the text. The pagan seamen provide a graphic portrayal of what is referred to in theology as common grace. In this episode of the story that we're looking at today, hope, justice, and integrity reside not with Jonah, where, where they ought to be residing, but they reside with the captain and the sailors these pagan people who don't know God. How about that? Though blameless victims, the sailors never cry injustice. Finding themselves in a dangerous situation not of their own making, they seek to solve it for the good of all. Never do they wallow in self-pity berate an angry God, condemn an arbitrary world, target the culprit Jonah for vengeance, or promote violence as an answer. Even though in the natural they had grounds to do all of those things. You see, the teaching of common grace shows us that God bestows gifts of wisdom. He gives gifts of wisdom and moral insight and goodness and beauty Across humanity, regardless of race, regardless of religious belief. James talks about this in chapter 1 and verse 17. James says, every gift God freely gives us is good and perfect, streaming down from the Father of lights, who shines from the heavens with no hidden shadow or darkness, and is never subject to change. Let's read it together, in fact. I believe it's on the screen. Lift your voices with me, will you? And and let, let this get into your spirit today. Every gift God freely gives us is good and perfect, streaming down from the Father of lights who shines from the heavens with no hidden shadow or darkness and is never subject to change. We might be surprised... how God may deliver these gifts and through whom He may deliver these gifts to us. That is, God is ultimately enabling every act of goodness. God is the author and the originator of every act of goodness, regardless of the channel through which it comes every act of wisdom, every act of justice and beauty, no matter who does it. Isaiah 45, verse 1, speaks of Cyrus, a pagan king whom God anoints and uses for world leadership. Isaiah 28, verses 23 to 29, tells us that when a farmer is fruitful, it is God who has been teaching him to be so. Yes, the good root of God's goodness goes deep down into the ground of our being. God in Christ is the root of all goodness wherever and in whomever it is found. Whatsoever culture it is found or with whatever names its fruits and flowers are. That means dear ones, that means that all good and great artistic expressions, skillful farming, effective governments, fruitful legitimate business endeavors, and scientific advances, all of them are God's gifts to the human race. They are undeserved gifts of God's mercy and grace. They are also common That is, they are distributed to any and all without discrimination. There's no indication that the monarch or the farmer mentioned in Isaiah embraced God by faith. We're not given any indication of that. Common grace does not regenerate the heart Or save the soul, or create a personal covenant relationship with God. However, without common grace, the world would be an intolerable place to live. God's common grace to all. Flannery O'Connor put it this way when there is a tendency to compartmentalize the spiritual, the spiritual is apt gradually to be lost. In other words, when we create these boxes and categories, this is spiritual, that's not. This sacred, secular dualism that we talked about earlier around the Advent wreath. is never God's design. His goodness is laced throughout all and various things. He's the author and the root of it. The spirituality of God's common grace is a wonderful, indiscriminate expression of His love and His kindness to all people. God does not discriminate His grace. You can look at it further. Psalm 145, verses 14-16 to is another good reference for us. Most certainly common grace that day with Jonah through the face of this pagan captain. Common grace was staring Jonah in the face. Jonah himself was a recipient of what has been called special grace. He had received the word of God. He had received a revelation of God's will not available to human reason or wisdom, however great that human reason and wisdom would be. He was given a special grace, a special gift, a message from God. Jonah was a follower of the Lord, the true God. So how was it possible that the pagans were outshining Jonah? Common grace means that non-believers... Please hear this. Because this so speaks to you and me today, to the church of this hour. Common grace means that non-believers often act... Are you ready? This might hurt, but we need to hear this. It means that non-believers often act more righteously than believers despite their lack of faith I'll say that again it means they often act more righteously and more godly than believers despite their lack of faith whereas believers filled with remaining sin and uncrucified flesh Often demonstrate attitudes and actions that are far worse than their correct belief in God would lead us to expect. All of this means and is to say that Christ followers, you and I, should be humble, respectful. Honorable, having the same attitude of Christ toward others, and in particular, those who do not share their faith. And it's got to begin here, beloved, among ourselves. If we can't practice these things here, how do we think we're ever going to do it out there in the world in which we live in this present age? If we can't honor one another here, how will we ever do it out there? If we can't demonstrate respect and embrace cultural diversity and, and treat one another with the attitude of Christ in our demeanor, in our disposition, in our, in our attitudes, how do we think we're ever going to be able to model it out there to the world? to those who do not share our faith we should be appreciative of the work of all people knowing that nonbelievers have many things to teach us jonah is learning this the hard way as perhaps so are we so are you it begs the question that we've already asked together from the beginning Say it again with me, will you? Who is my neighbor? Say it with me. Who is my neighbor? Both of these insights about the importance of common grace and common good are taught, interestingly enough, in Jesus' famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Who is my neighbor? Jesus takes the seemingly pedestrian exhortation love your neighbor and he gives it the most radical possible definition. He tells us that all in need. Everybody say all. All. How many know all means all? All in the Greek means all. All in need, Jesus says, including those of other nations, other ethnicities, immigrants, people groups, and beliefs, Other religious, all are our neighbors. And we're also shown that the way to love our neighbors is not merely through sentiment, but through costly, sacrificial, practical action to meet material and economic needs. The text at hand in front of us today that we have opened before us in Jonah indicates that Jonah resisted doing anything or even talking to the pagan sailors. The bad prophet Jonah is the very opposite of the good Samaritan. He has no concern for the common good, no respect for the non-believers around him. In the New Testament book of James, the author argues that if you say you have a relationship with God, based on His grace, and you see someone without clothes and daily food and do nothing about it, you only prove that your faith is dead. It's unreal. It's not legitimate. It's phony. And that is why James can say judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The lack of mercy in Jonah's attitude and actions toward others reveals that he himself was a stranger in his heart to the saving mercy and grace of God. What about us? Are we a stranger to God's saving grace? Oh, we may know it in our heads, but are we living it? Me? You? Are we living it? God shows us through Jonah that we are to honor and respect all people, especially as people ourselves of grace, God's grace, the people of God, the people of the Spirit. And as we model for us, and as he shows us, <laughs> interestingly enough, through the sailors, and the contrast of the sailors with Jonah, his prophet, he promises us that as we give ourselves to live this way, not, uh, yes, we're, we're not perfect, we're, we're human, we're fl- all of that. God's got that perfection thing under control. We don't need to be concerned about that. He's perfecting us by His grace. But as we give ourselves to live this, God promises us that the great and glorious fullness of His redemption and His presence for all people will be carried out. This is what we learn from the story of Jonah. Would you stand together with me as Frank and the team come? This is a perhaps a hard word because the Holy Spirit is speaking to us today in a way that is touching on aspects of our worldview and our outlook and our attitudes and places of the heart that that make us feel very uncomfortable, perhaps even disturbed and irritated. But may we hear what the Spirit is saying. May we have ears to hear, beloved, what the Spirit is saying to us. May we take hold of hope in Christ Jesus rather than those habits of our heart which are not of him.